The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's rise and worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you from Psalm 33. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people to no effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his own inheritance. Lift up your hearts, lift them up to the Lord, our great God and Father. We marvel and stand in awe of your power. All you have to do is speak a word and a world leaps into existence. You plan and direct the course of all the people. This ranges from election results to road construction to toddlers running in the aisles. All of life is under your sovereign control. And as your people, we gladly admit and submit to this truth. We desire for our nation to be blessed. And so we turn and worship you as our God and as our Lord. Please accept our worship now as we come to you through Jesus Christ. And amen. Amen. As we uh, continue to work our way through the fruit of the Spirit, we come to faithfulness. And as Christians, we all know that we need to have faith And that faith is in Jesus. But often we think of our faith like the fingers of a rock climber desperately trying to hold on to the cliff called Jesus. Like, I can't let go. And if my faith is not strong enough or my grip slips or I doubt, then I plummet down to unbelief. And there's a temptation for Christians to doubt our faith, to wonder if we believe enough or have strong enough faith. Perhaps you wonder if you are believing God enough for your parenting, or you're wondering if you are being faithful enough in your financial decisions. But the problem is that examining your faith is actually focusing on the wrong thing. Faith isn't what holds you. Jesus holds you. Jesus is the rock under your feet that your faith rests on. Or to go back to Galatians 5, Jesus is the root. Jesus is the trunk. Jesus is the branch that supports all of the fruit of your faithfulness. Now, your faith may be weak or strong, full of doubt or full of confidence, but it all depends on what you put your faith in. I heard a great analogy from Pastor Toby on this. He says, suppose a man has very, very, very strong faith in his ability to fly by flapping his arms. And his great faith causes him to leap off of a high building. And it doesn't matter how strong his faith is, how confident his faith is, because he has put his faith in something that is not strong his flapping arm ability. But now imagine someone who is terrified 
of flying in an airplane. And he has a very weak faith and can barely bring himself to board the plane. But he still gets strapped into the plane. The fact that he has very little faith isn't a problem. Because he has placed his very weak faith in a very strong object. So, who do you put your trust in? Jesus. Jesus is the strong one who must be the object of your faith. But know that your faith isn't what holds you. Jesus is the one who holds you. So whether you have strong faith or weak faith, put that faith in him, trusting in him, resting in him. For Jesus is the one who is worthy of your faith. From Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Father, we confess that we have put our faith not in you, but in any other object. We have sought our support through money, popularity, parents, election results, boyfriends, or so often our own self. We attempt to hold ourselves up, but of course we fall. This faithlessness in you has led to unfaithfulness. We have not trusted you, and so we have been unfaithful in anxiety, in relationships, in finances, in disciplining children. We acknowledge our sin. Please have mercy upon us, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. And we confess our individual sins to you now and Selah. We ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of God's pardon. Isaiah 27, 6 says, Those who come, he, God, shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall bloom, blossom, and bud, and fill the face of the world with fruit. Brothers and sisters, let me remind you of the double blessings of the gospel. The Holy Spirit has grafted you into Jesus Christ. And so all of your faithfulness, all your, your budding, your blossoming, your fruit, all comes from him. He is a source of that all. And when you are faithless, when you are unfruitful, when you are barren, then Jesus has provided forgiveness of that sin by faithfully dying on a barren tree. And if you believe this, if you confess your sin looking to Jesus Christ, then I declare to you by the power of the gospel that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. Please remain standing as we read uh, the sermon text for today. We are going to be covering all the chapter of Deuteronomy 29, but I'm only going to be reading here as an introduction verses. 14 through 19. I make this covenant and this oath 
not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. For you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you passed by. And you saw their abominations and their idols, which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold. So that there may not be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. And that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen that when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I shall have peace, even though I follow the dictates of my heart, as though the drunkard could be included with the sober. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that uh, calls out to each of our hearts to bend our knee before you in thankfulness. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit might have his way in our hearts this morning, our spirits working to draw us more into yourself, into the relationship with you in a way that changes us for your glory. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> well, as we dig into this passage on renewing the covenant, renewing covenant with God, and the renewing of the covenant of the children of Israel with God here, as a stamp on the edge of the promised land, I want you to remind you that um, we don't want to miss important parallels with what we do every week here. In fact, what we're doing here this morning is also a form of covenant renewal, just like we were w- witnessing baptisms. That's a form of, of making a covenant with God, and what we're doing here and what we do every Sunday is a form of covenant renewal. For the children of Israel, they were renewing covenant before they were going in to conquer the land of Canaan. For us, we are preparing for the expansion of the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We, make, we renew our covenant because we have, as well, a kingdom to conquer. Now, these folks had experienced the intimate watch care of God in every aspect of their lives for 40 years. And we have experienced the loving kindness of God for about 40 years, at least in my experience here, Uh, in Moscow, where we are reminded of God's glory and his goodness to us through the teaching of the word, through the expansion of the gospel, through the growth of our churches, through the raising of our children, through the establishment of schools and universities. All these things are a massive blessing that we have experienced here in the last 40 years. So we are here this morning to remind of God's glory and of our salvation and how he wants us to be made more like Jesus so that we can be fully used in his plans for the salvation of the world. Now in this chapter, Moses highlights the fact that the children of Israel saw the destruction of all the idols in Egypt and also in Sihon and Moab, uh, highlighting the logical conclusion that there, there shouldn't be any of these people here who should be unbelieving. They had seen all these miracles. They had seen the destruction of these giants. They had seen it all. So it should be obvious. There shouldn't be any unbelief there. But as Toby stressed last week, there are idols of today uh, we also have idols today, and they don't have to be sheeted with silver or gold to become idols. They can still be idols. In fact, an idol is anything, it is absolutely anything for which we are holding on to tighter than our love for God. It can be anything that we think will bring us more happiness, more joy than hanging on to the, 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 the goodness that comes from God. It can be anything that we are willing to sin to get. We might do that through lying, cheating, envy, uh, stealing. Or sin if we don't get it. We're unhappy. We're bitter. We're depressed. 
we're mad. So what kind of attitude or unbelief turns our heart toward idols? So what the thing that, that Moses is saying here, he's on the edge with all these people, he's warning them, he says, look, you're, there's unbelief out there. What is the risk? What are the ways that your heart might be turned toward unbelief, toward these idols, toward these sins? On well, these verses, we see two modes. We see two different ways that hearts are turned away from God. The first is a view that sees God that is embittered, that is embittered. That's to say that we're feeling embittered toward God, and a root of bitterness, it says, has grown up in our unbelieving hearts. Think of Naomi. She says, hey, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. She says, call me Mara. Call me Mara, which is bitter. I'm bitter. And why was she bitter? Well, because she had experienced some hardships in her life. She had lost her husband. She had lost her sons. And she had seen that as God being spiteful, as God being mean-spirited toward her. So she says, don't call me, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. She concluded, based on her perception of her circumstances, that God was against her. But yet we know that all the while, God was using all those circumstances to what? To put her right in the center of the salvation of the world. Put her right in the center of bringing the Savior, the Lord Jesus, into the world. So her perception was, was not right. It was not in the sense of what God was trying to do in terms of saying, I'm in control. I'm in control for good in all this situation. But the embittered person misses this. Instead of seeing God's power, provision, intimacy with his people, he only perceives or she only perceives that God is being hard on them, being hard on me. Well, that matches us as a modern people. We want to be in control. We want many things. We think to make ourselves happy, we want better looks, we want better popularity, we want more money, we want an easier life, we want a happier wife, we want a more faithful husband, we want more obedient kids. We want admiration. We want, we want, we want. That is, that is kind of the, the sense of our culture today. And based on the fact that not only have we not gotten our wants, many times we've gotten what we perceive as a short shrift from God, our response is bitterness. We become embittered like this person that Moses is warning about. And we think God's mean-spirited toward us. He's not giving us things that we believe we need for happiness. Well, the second way that people turn away toward the idols or these things that they're searching after other than God, is because they're convinced that God just doesn't have any power or control on their lives. God's too distant. They are autonomous. They can hear the curse. They hear all those curses that we heard of uh, the last two weeks. They recognize the truth of their sin, but still they walk away saying, I'll have peace, even though I decide to do what is right or wrong for myself. Like it says in this passage, I make, make, up, my own, I make up my own decisions for me. I'm completely independent. But they say this denying the fact that God's power is real, that his readiness to bring down on those lifted up in pride against his rule is real. And it's interesting, the same logic is used by the people in, the, in Nebuchadnezzar's day when Ezekiel's prophesying against them, and he says, they're all hiding in the darkness. They think God doesn't see us. And what did God do to them? He brought Nebuchadnezzar. He wiped their city off the face of the map, and he took them with him. Well, we can resemble this as moderns as well. We remember resemble this attitude. We think that our external compliance to rules in our Christian school, maybe showing up here with, uh, you know, a happy face, you know, which uh, hides kind of all the different inward things that are going on with us. We think that if we can do this, we can pursue our own agenda without repercussions for our heart. But if a man looks at porn in secret, can he hold burning coals on his lap without being burned? Are we like the woman in Proverbs who tearing her own house down by her nagging and lack of submissiveness? Are we students cheating on our work to get the good gray we don't deserve? 
Or are we children hiding our bitter hearts behind fake smiles? Well, Moses mocks that kind of attitude, that attitude that says, I can do anything I really want to do, and God doesn't see. He says that's like a drunk man who says, I'm sober, I'm good, I'm good, no, no problem. Give me the keys to the car, I'm ready to go. So as we review this process of Israel renewing the covenant, that as they're standing on the edge of the, of the promised land, remember that everything that was written in the Old Testament, Paul says, was written for us. It was written for us as an example that we might follow, we might learn, we might gather something from this to apply to our own lives. So let's see if we can put ourselves in their sandals. They had just finished a 40-year-long training session to learn to depend on God for everything, absolutely everything, their bread, their water, their clothes, uh, and even their daily direction. Now think about it. If, if for you, if you for the last 40 years, you had to wake up each morning and, you, and your mom's like, hey, go outside and get breakfast. And you're out there, you know, you're picking up all the, you know, the man off the grass. And it's like, okay, you know, this is what, how, I, how I'm going to be fed today. And the next thing you do is you have to say, get the jug and go down to the rock that, you know, God just spoke water out of in the desert. And where they were in the desert is a desert. It is like, it is like beastly dry out there and, and nasty. So you're going out there every morning, you're getting this water. And every morning you have to look outside and say, hey, are we going anywhere today? And you look out and you're like... Oh yeah, the pillar's still there. The fire's still there. I'm not going anywhere. Every day you're looking for God's direction. And every day you're looking at your clothes, you're looking at your sandals, you're saying, man, I've been wearing like the same clothes for like 40 years. It hasn't changed a bit. You know, it's like looking pretty good, you know, good threads. So, uh, you know, that's what it was like every single day, 40 years. 40 years. Every day you looked out and you saw these things. And besides that, you had witnessed the mighty miracles in Egypt. You had witnessed the, the, the taking out of uh, Og and, and, uh, and Sihon, these big giants for this land you just traveled. And you watched your parents and your grandparents die young. Why? Because you knew that they stood on the same spot that you stood on 40 years previous. And they said, no, we're not doing what God said. And they died early, the Bible says. God's hand was heavy against them. You'd seen all these things. Well, you know, what would you take away from that? 40 years, day by day, seeing all these things. What would you take away? Well, I would... I would hope that you wouldn't be embittered. I would hope that you wouldn't be complacent. I would think at least you might come up with the conclusion that the God, the God of the universe, the all-powerful God, the God who can take out all these idols and do all these miracles, is in control and is bringing all these things to fruition. Certainly this God who was able to humiliate all the gods of the Egyptians and those of Heshbon and Bashan and kept his word concerning the curse on your unbelieving parents, this God is something. This God is a God that understands, is involved, is driving all these things, and all the while caring for my individual needs every single day and pointing me in the direction I should go every single day. Well, this is exactly the position of the children of Israel as they stand before Moses, and this is what Moses reminded the people about in his verses 1 through 8 of this chapter. And Moses, God's representative, is there to renew this covenant between them and God with his 40-year training program as a backdrop. And that's where we are every day. Every week we come in and we have a 40-year training you know, behind us or we have whatever length of time we've lived. But let's, let's, before we kind of dive into what that means for us as covenant renewal, let's talk about what is a covenant in the first place. I think in my notes I put in there that summarizing from Baker's uh, Evangelical Dictionary, it says a, a covenant is a contract or it's an agreement between two parties sealed by vowing or sometimes an oath with attendant blessings and curses based on the completion of that vow or that oath or that promise. So in our day, we have like examples, marriage uh, covenants, we have uh, business uh, covenants or business uh, contracts, and the success or the failure of those is based on whether we keep it or not. 
And if we don't keep it, there are curses. If we do keep it, there are blessings. But what's different about God's covenant is it's not, it's not a two-way street. It's not like God does his 50% and I do my 50%. God's covenant with us is unilateral. It's unilateral. That means it's coming from God and it doesn't rely on us. He's, he is saying, here it is. You can receive it. You're, you're called to accept what is offered. You're, you, in fact, are demanded to receive the results. Here it is. You're de- here it is, and you're, and you're saying, <coughs> and the re- sorry, and to receive the results of God by oath assures will not be withheld. So God says, this is my covenant. I'm making an oath. I'm making a promise. This is how things are going to work, and you have the opportunity to receive that. And our part is to believe it and to take it by faith. Now, as we heard preached by Aaron two weeks ago so clearly, the results of keeping or not keeping the covenant are stark. They are, like, they're black and white. If we look to the next chapter in Deuteronomy 30, 15, we see this. Moses says, see, I've set, you, I've set before you today life and good, death and evil. Now, how's that for a contrast, right? You have life or death. You have good or evil. It just doesn't get much more distinct than that. And looking to verse 9 of this chapter in 29, it says, Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. So the blessings are there. The promises of God are there. It's, it's a stark difference. We either take God's unilateral contract, unilateral offer to us, or we don't. We, re- we reject it. There's curses. We take it. There are many blessings in front of us. You say, well, that, that seems pretty straightforward. It's pretty tangible. It's visible. God's laid out his power. He's laid out his plan. He's shown us his miracles. But right in the middle of this passage, if you look at verse 4, there's kind of a, a startling passage there, a startling verse. It says, Yet the Lord has not given you, he's talking to the people that are there on the, edge of the de- on the edge of the promised land, a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. He says, you guys have seen everything, but you still have this problem. You don't have a heart to perceive. The Lord hasn't given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear. Well, wait a second. You say, this is a unilateral contract and things aren't looking so good for the people of Israel because they haven't been given these things. Moses says that in spite of the children of Israel seeing all these things, he has not given them a heart to perceive it or to hear it. Now, do we know anywhere else in the scriptures that has this kind of ring to it, that has these kind of same, same type of message? Well, we do. In Isaiah, in chapter 6, where Isaiah sees the mighty vision of God on the throne, and God says, who am I going to send to these people? And, 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 I, and he says, send me, send me, I'll go, I'll go. And God tells Isaiah this in verses 9 and 10. He says, And he said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And in the New Testament, Jesus tells the parable of the sower in Luke 8, very similarly. He says to his disciples after they asked him to explain, he says this. He says, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest... It is given in parables that, quoting Isaiah, says, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So we see in these passages that God acts according to his counsel and he acts according to his counsel in time and in history. And in this case, he had not given the children of Israel a heart of understanding. Now, as we struggle with that verse, let's go to the conclusion that, Paul, that, uh, uh, that Moses uh, puts, us, puts us on in verse 29 of that chapter, 29-29. He says this, the secret things belong to God, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but to those things which are revealed, they belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. So the secret things belong to the Lord, but
But those things which were revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we might do all the words of this law. So, if you want to know the secret things of God, come close. Ready? They're secret. You don't know them. It's an eternal decree. You can't know the eternal decrees of God. There are secret things that God, who is infinite and all-powerful, of which we're not, we're finite, we're not all omnipresent, we're not all the different characteristics that God has. So there are things which even if you wanted to understand, you could never understand. They're secret. They're secret and they belong to God. And they won't be ours. So you can kind of wrestle with that a lot, but you're not going to get very far. And that's what he's saying here. The secret things belong to God, but, but that doesn't stop there. We don't have to feel bad. So why, why is that? Well, because even though we don't have access to all the things that are behind God's decisions, we have what's revealed. And what's revealed? It says here, it says that after Isaiah heard this, he began to weep. He's like, Lord, how long? How long are you going to give these people a, a, a blindness, a kind of incapacity to see and hear? And he says this. He says, he says it's not going to be forever. I've reserved holiness in the stump. I've reserved holiness and stuff. I've reserved my people. And similarly, we know that the work of Christ and his miracles and his teaching, his death, burial, and resurrection, they were, they were observed by multitudes, but some of the people, it was, remained obscure. I mean, the first people who saw the resurrection, the guards, hey, give us some money, we'll tell, tell some lies. The Pharisees who received that information, here, here's some money, take care of it, no worries, we'll take care of you. They heard it, or the people that saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they first went back to Jerusalem, it's like, we've got to get rid of this guy. He's causing all sorts of trouble. They saw him raised from the dead. So to some people, it was absolutely obscure. But to many, to multitudes, others received, perceived the truth, and that included of the day, many, many Jews. And here we are today. So we see the secret things of God include opening eyes and calling people to himself. And with this in mind, it's natural for someone to ask the question whether God is working sovereignly in their own heart and mind. What about me? But this is a misguided operation, Right? Because these things are secret. They're a secret thing to God. What, what instead we should be thinking about is not we should be despairing. I don't know. I don't know this. I don't know that. But what we should be focusing on is what God has revealed. What God has revealed is what we should be looking at. Now, if we look at verse 13 of this chapter, it says that he, God, may establish you today as a people for himself and that he may be God to you just as he has spoken to you and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So God's pretty clear. He has a chosen people for himself, and we know that he redeemed and rescued that people from Egypt. And we know that he revealed himself to them and shepherded them night and day. He provided food and drink to them. And furthermore, he says that this relationship that he has with them is going to be epitomized by his relationship he had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did that look like? What kind of relationship did Abraham have with God? Well, he was called God's friend. He was God, God met with him. God talked with him. And that's the kind of covenant that, that God wants with us, that we are renewing with him. It's a covenant of relationship, a personal relationship. So what has been revealed, in other words, the secret things, we don't have our, we, we can't know the, omni, the omnipresent or the, the all-powerful, uh, the, the, the eternal decrees of God, but what we can know is that God has revealed to us and to our children all the words of his law and all the things that God wants for us, and ultimately that he calls us into fellowship. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, he says, this is what we're called for. God's faithfully has called us into fellowship with himself, into koinonia. We have Jesus. We have the complete revelation of God in Jesus. We can see ourselves standing on the board of the promise. What's our promise? The promise of heaven, the promise of friendship with God, the promise of adoption as children. That's our exhortation that we're, we're receiving as we stand 
covenantally every week on the, on the edge here. In Hebrews, it says there was a, the, the people, he, he, he says, this is not what we've gotten. We haven't come to the mountain that may be touched and that burn with fire to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words. So those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. But we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than Abel. Look, we have a better covenant. We have, we've seen more. We've seen more than the children of Israel have seen. We have a, a more comfortable revelation. We don't have to be, I mean, Moses was a, he was a tough dude. And what do you say? He says, I wish, you know, he was shaken up. And the people were so shaken up. They're like, don't talk to us. You, you know, Moses, we know you're shaken up, but you go talk with God. We're not doing it anymore. That's it. You know, you do it. You know, we come to something different from that. We come to a history, a testimony of God's creation. We have the history of God bringing his promise of salvation to fruition. We have the Lord Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection. We have the testimony of the saints over the last 2,000 years in his church. We have the church. We have God's testimony here in an amazing way of the 40 years that God's been working uh, almost you know, since Jim moved here and other things that God's been doing before Jim moved here of the gospel moving in our community. We have a lot of things that we have witnessed. And we're standing here. But now the Holy Spirit stands before us like Moses and calls us into covenant with the Son. We have seen all of this. But the question is, do we have a spirit of understanding or not? In Romans 10, Paul says that many Jews missed the righteousness of God. They missed it. Like the guy in Deuteronomy 29 who says he could follow his own heart, they weren't willing, it says in chapter 10 of Romans, to submit to God's righteousness. They weren't willing to receive God's unilateral promise of his righteousness. But Paul says in Romans 10 that the righteousness of God is near to us. It's near to every one of us. It says, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth one confesses unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's God's unilateral offer. His covenant with us. God's near to every one of us. To you, and to you, and to you, and to me. He's near to every one of us. And his covenant is rich. He says he's rich. He is offering his richness to us. That's our God. But again, where are you in all of this? Let's begin with the secret things of God. You might again be saying in your heart, I just don't know. I just, I just don't know. You know. Maybe I'm not, it's not for me. Maybe I, I missed the tattoo. You know, I, I was looking around for it. I don't know if I got the right tattoo. Right? Nobody taught me the secret handshake. You know, I don't know exactly how to make it all work. Maybe I'm not chosen. Well, this introspection is not right. It's not biblical, and it's certainly not effective. Let me quote George MacDonald. He says, instead of asking yourself whether you believe or not, you should ask yourself whether you have this day done one thing because he said, do it. Or once abstained because he said, don't do it. It's simply absurd to say you believe or even want to believe in him if you don't do anything he tells you. 
If you don't do anything, he tells you. Well, what's one thing that God's telling you right now? How about today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did in Meribah. Don't harden your heart. Don't, don't think like Naomi. God's just so hard on me. Everything he brings in my life is so tough. You know, it's, he's mean-spirited. Or to think like this guy who was drunk when he thinks he's sober. It's like, God doesn't know. He doesn't care. He doesn't see my heart. He doesn't know what I'm thinking right now. He doesn't know, how, he doesn't know what's going on here. No, don't harden your heart. Don't listen to yourself. Instead, talk to yourself. And what you need to say is, again, as McDonald says, obedience is the key to everything. So you need to step forward. The very next step, the very next thing that God's asking you to do, that's what he's calling you to do. Do that one thing. What is he telling you to do or to stop doing? The thing that he's warning you not to do, are you, in fact, exercising faith, a faith that believes that God is and that he's rich toward those who seek after him. And the one truth test, the one truth test of your belief with active obedience is this. Give thanks to God. Give thanks to God. Did you give thanks to God today? Thanksgiving is, a, is, a, is, a, is like a double-edged sword to deal with the two doubts that are presented in this passage. The doubt of bitterness. If I'm giving thanks, what does that imply? It implies that I'm receiving something. I'm happy for it. I'm giving thanks for it. So I deal with the embitterment. I deal with the possibility of that root growing up. I cut it off short. Or if I'm giving thanks, what am I doing in terms of acknowledging God? I'm acknowledging God's presence. I'm acknowledging God's goodness. I'm acknowledging the fact that God's given me everything, my very next breath. So thankfulness is a double-edged sword that you can use every single day, every single morning to deal with the threats of falling away with embitterment or abandonment. Well, that's a message for everyone, but it's particularly for those who might be new to Christianity or maybe comparatively young in the faith. Uh, I think about like teenagers, young people, things like that, you know. Let me, think, let me speak to you who have actually grown up in the faith, uh, but perhaps you haven't taken hold of it yet, right? You see that when you're surrounded by something, you can imagine that you have it because it kind of fills the air that you breathe. It's all around you. But when push comes to shove, like when you might go to leave home for college or a job elsewhere, and you find yourself suddenly immersed in a culture that's completely contra to what you're in right now, you're going to find out whether your faith is real or not, whether it's yours or somebody else's. You know, is the faith that in the, in the God of the Bible or in something else? If it wasn't yours and it wasn't the Lord Jesus who died for your sins and was raised from the dead, you're going to find yourself tumbled over. No, <clears throat> you're going to find either that you were harboring some roots of bitterness to God or for your upbringing, or maybe two, you were longing for the day when you could finally escape the watchful eye of your community and your parents so you could declare your freedom and your own independence. I mean, isn't that what happens really? You know, people go off to school, they leave home, and they're like, Man, my parents are like, they were so bad. They were like so hard on me. You know, they were like, it was terrible. And the church, it was so restrictive. And now I am totally free. I am totally able to do what I want. I'm able to act like that man who thinks that I'm free from God's presence. But they are quick to forget what they learned and seen and experienced of God's goodness and instead begin that downward slide into the hell of a life lived for oneself. It's death, not life. It's evil, not good. Well, the book of Deuteronomy begins and ends with this connection of, of obedience and wisdom. In uh, chapter 4, verse 6, it says, Therefore be careful to observe them, that's the laws of God, the things that God has told us to do, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples who will hear all these statutes. And at the very end of Deuteronomy, it says this in 34, 9, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him, so the children of Israel heeded him 
And he, he did as the Lord had commanded Moses. So they both had wisdom, and they followed that with obedience. So now you're sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm pretty good. I'm a fourth-generation Kirker. <clears throat> or are you relying, again, on that secret handshake? I hope not, because no such thing exists, or at least no one taught it to me yet. You know, I'm trying to figure that out. I, so are you thinking you're fine because you're a good person? Well, you may look good in relationship to the world. It's not hard to look good in relationship to the world anymore. All you got to do is figure out, hey, I'm, I'm a guy, you know? <laughs> I, I was born a guy, and I think I still am. You know, that's the kind of thing. You know, it's like you don't have to be that. You don't, and so it's easy to get prideful, right? It's easy to think, I got it over the world. I must be a good person. Well, <laughs> that's not the way it works. Your goodness didn't come from your ability to distinguish that you knew what you were. Um, now, some problems happen when you can't figure out what you are, but, but the thing is, is that's not where your goodness. You, you shouldn't be congratulating yourself on your purity in comparison to a world that, is, that has gone off the deep end. That's not where your goodness comes from. But it's easy to think about, that's easy where pride comes from. It's easy to look at ourselves and look at our community and think, I'm pretty good. That's what makes me good. Look at, look at the people I hang out with. I look at myself. I'm, I know what I am. Well, the reality is, is you started out as a vessel full of sin, egotism, and vile thoughts. And that many times that plagues you every week. That's why we confess our sins weekly as a reminder that, that it's easy to fall back into old tracks. But God offers to clean your vessel, clean your heart, and fill you with his goodness. That alone is the only source of any goodness in you. Even your present escape from the world, the fact that you're here this morning, is a gift from God as a blessing flowing from your heritage, and your community. Don't trust in it, but trust in God and give thanks for it. So, wisdom is linked with obedience, and wisdom really is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And that is the beauty of this new covenant with God that he's calling us into. It's about obedience, but it's not obedience that's like we're ginning it up, but it's obedience that's an outpouring of the relationship that we have with God, the outpouring of the work of the Holy Spirit, an outpouring that is demonstrated and manifested and confirmed by daily thankfulness. If you believe in the Lord Jesus from the heart and confessed him with your mouth, the Bible says you are saved. You are now in relationship with God because you're in Christ. And think about it. You know, Christ is a trinity. We believe we're Trinitarian. is in perfect fellowship with the Father. If we're in Christ, we're in perfect fellowship with God. I mean, that's a wonderful and amazing thought that we're in perfect fellowship with God. And if Christ is in fellowship with the Father and we're in perfect fellowship with the Father, then you, and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, that means we have Christ dwelling in us, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we are in perfect fellowship with God. That's our current state. That is, that is where we are. And that's why we can expect to see the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, justice, all those things pouring out of our lives. And, and you are called to grow in that faith and love for God with the help of the Holy Spirit. How? Well, ask. But recognize that what you're asking for is the experience of the relationship that God promises us. He promises us that he wants koinonia with us. So when we renew our covenant, when we, when we, we ask for help of the Holy Spirit, we're just asking God to make real what is real, make real in our hearts what is real. And not a reality that's just like, I went to church, or I did this, or I had the happy face, or I didn't get in trouble at school, but the fact that I'm experiencing a relationship with God every day through the work of the Holy Spirit. Just ask. God has called you today, this morning, to renew your covenant with him, to trust in his salvation. You know, when they were on the edge of the, 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 
the land of Israel there, looking down in the, in the valley, in the Jordan Valley there, and looking across the mountains. You know, Moses wasn't asking them to trust in their own works. You know, he wasn't asking them to trust in their own, you know, the fact that they kind of like picked up man every day, you know, or, or saw, you know, moved their tents when they had moved. No, he was saying, trust in me. I think Ty made a good point. Our faith is generated by the faithfulness of the object in which we are trusting, not, not in something we gin up. The more we understand God's faithfulness, his character, the more our faith is generated, the more our faith is strengthened, the more our faith has a reality. And so we have a faithful object, God, who says, I want to be in personal relationship with you. That is the covenant we're renewing every day, not just on Sundays, which is it's a, it's a great time to come together as a body of Christ and renew our covenant jointly, but every day. God wants that relationship with you every day. That's the reality. It's not just going to church. It's not just going, you know, thinking God thoughts. It's not just kind of memorizing Bible verses. We have a relationship with the God of the universe in Christ. Let this truth, let this reality draw worship and obedience out of your heart of gratitude. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for calling us into the kingdom, for extending your covenant of grace, the free gift of Christ's righteousness. Forgive us for not seeing your hand of grace, but instead falsely interpreting difficulties as your anger instead of your goodness. Forgive us for thinking that we can operate even one second outside of your watch care. Instead, turn our hearts toward you so that we may enjoy perfect fellowship with you and with one another, loving one another just as you've loved us. <clears throat> in Luke 18, uh, Jesus spoke this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, that's who he's talking to, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, I tell you, this man went away to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Interesting that both of these men went to church. Both these men went to church to renew their covenant with God, but only one went away justified. One trusted in himself, in his own works, that was the religious Pharisee, and he presumed that he was good because of all that he was doing, not what God had done for him. The other called out to God for mercy, understanding his great need for God's grace. That's the difference. All are welcome at this table if they come for that grace, because grace set this table this table was set by God, humbling himself in Christ, taking on a human body and suffering an excruciating death, a death at the hands of his own creation, so that he might extend his righteousness to us by grace alone. And because of his humble obedience, Christ's humble obedience, the Father glorified the Son. Now, when we come, like the tax collector, humble, and, the knowledge, and in the knowledge that we bring nothing to God except our need for mercy, we come away lifted up, strengthened, and encouraged. In this sense, renewing our covenant with God is reminding ourselves that all of our confidence must rest in His faithfulness. Coming to Him at this table is, in fact, an act of obedience. He calls us into relationship, intimate, personal relationship. Rest in this. Rejoice in this as you come to eat with Him and receive the blessing of God in Christ.
Well, I'm looking forward to seeing all of you tonight at 7 o'clock at our Heads of Household <clears throat> because I think that's part of the work that we have seen of our God in history, in our community, in our families, in our lives. We met with the Lord here this morning in worship. Now we can go forth in the power of His Spirit with renewed strength and confidence in His grace toward you and toward the world. So receive now the benediction of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.